Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It's on page 472 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have your own Bible, it's the black hardcover in the chair in front of you. You can turn to page 472. The big numbers are the psalm numbers, and the small numbers, or I guess you might not even have that. Um, yeah, you might have a big number, you might not, but um, the big numbers would be the psalm number, and then the small numbers would be the verse numbers. So we're going to look at Psalm 2. I will read all 12 verses as God speaks to us from His Word, and then we'll meditate on this together. Hear God's Word from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then He speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For His anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in Him are happy. Or another way of translating that last line, how happy are all who take refuge in Him. Father, that's our prayer, that we would take refuge in Christ, that we would be happy, that we would prosper, that we would have true joy and true hope and true happiness by taking refuge in your Son. So, Father, we ask now that you would help us, help me to preach and teach your Word and to meditate on your Word for my own soul's good, for our soul's good, as we meditate on your Scripture. Help us, Father. Soften our hearts. Enlighten our eyes. Make our ears more sensitive and clear in hearing. Give our minds a focus free from distraction that we might receive your instruction and walk in your ways. Help us to see the majesty of Jesus Christ that we would not only follow him out of duty but out of sheer delight. Help us. This comes from your spirit, so help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know the story of one of the most powerful kings in world history. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon and extended the Babylonian Empire there in the ancient Near East about 600 BC, around that time, the early 600s, or I guess we'd say the late 600s to the early 500s. He was um, ruling over Babylon and extending his empire. He's in the book of Daniel. You can read a lot of his story there in the book of Daniel. In one of the stories, in Daniel chapter 4, he's alarmed by a dream. He has a dream, and it scares him, and so he asks for people to interpret the dream for him. Well, Daniel, one of the prophets and wise men in the Babylonian court, interprets the dream. And in that dream, it's a, it's a warning from God that God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar for his pride as king. Because he's, the most, he's literally the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he gets a dream from God that scares him, and then Daniel says, God is warning you. I wish, this, I wish this dream was for your enemies, but it's for you. God is going to humble you and embarrass you in such a way that you will realize that heaven rules. Babylon doesn't rule. Heaven rules. And so... Um, so so um, Nebuchadnezzar heard that. He was scared, so you'd think he would take that warning seriously, and maybe he did. But 12 months later, you could take a warning seriously for a month, right? Two months. 
But after a year, you could go back to your old, your old habits, right? At, you know, you know, after two weeks, you're back in your old ways, right? So you're, you're resolved. And then you go back to your old ways. And so a year later, he's walking around his palace, and he says this in Daniel 4, verse 30. He's looking at how impressive his palace and his empire is. And he says, it says in Daniel 4, 30, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the Great that I have built? to be a royal dynasty by my vast power and for my majestic glory. I mean, he heard God's warning, but not too long later, he's, my power, I built this. My, my power, my glory. I mean, he was just amazed a few, uh, uh, just not too recent before that. You guys know the fiery furnace story? Some of you don't know that story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was gonna throw people in the furnace who didn't bow and worship his big gold statue. And three people who believed in the Lord, Yahweh, did not bow. And Nebuchadnezzar threw them in the fire and they didn't burn. And they came back out. And Nebuchadnezzar praised Yahweh. And now he gets this vision or this dream and he's warned by Yahweh. But still, he doesn't get it. He just puffs out his chest towards God. Now, we all have a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in us, don't we? Not only the forgetfulness that we might hear God's warning and, and tremble for a week, and then go back to our old ways, that, that's in us. But even, even the, the, um, the self-exaltation, the selfishness is in us. And not only that, Nebuchadnezzar's not a demon, so there is some common grace in him. He is made in the image of God, right, as a human. So we all have even the, the Nebuchadnezzar part in us that wants to build something great for our future reign and rule. We all want to do something significant with our lives, don't we? We don't want to waste our lives. We want to take what God puts in front of us and we want to build our lives and say, praise God, what a good job, and take pride in, in work well done, don't we? We want to. And that's like Nebuchadnezzar as well. And Psalm 2 ends, look at Psalm 2, the very last line that I retranslated for you or rephrased, how happy are all those who take refuge in him. We're talking about the happy man still, like Psalm 1, the happy man who delights in God's word. He doesn't, he's not influenced by the world but he's delighting in God's word and he meditates on it day and night so that he's like a tree planted by streams of water and whatever he does, he prospers. Everything he does prospers, even his failures prosper. And the wicked are not like that. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Remember that? That's the ha so the happy man is dominated by delight in God's word, God's message, God's instruction. And here the happy man is the one who takes refuge in him. And that's what we want. We want to be those happy people, not the cheap happiness that comes and goes, but a, a happiness that can endure the most horrific of life experiences. But we have setbacks and difficulties to our happiness, as all people do. And when we meet these setbacks and challenges in our lives, we get frustrated because we want happiness. And oftentimes we're frustrated because we want our happiness on our time in our way. That's a common human sinful reflex. We want our happiness in our time to our degree in our way. Even one of your own poets and philosophers, Frank Sinatra, has sung. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state the, my case of which I'm certain. I lived a life that's full. I traveled every, each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I did it my way. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried, I've had my fill, I, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now, as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think, I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has not, to say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels? The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. A little Nebuchadnezzar in us, to do it our way, in our time, for our happiness, and to this Psalm 2 speaks a sobering and life-giving word of true happiness. You want to know the truly happy way? Psalm 2 is a sure and steady guide. And so here's the main goal. 
If I had to sum, uh, summarize Psalm 2, what does Psalm 2, what does God want to say to you today, Bethany Baptist Church and those guests here? From Psalm 2, here's what God is telling you. Honor God's son or die. That's the main goal of the psalm. It's the main message of the psalm. Honor God's son or die. I almost said honor God's son or perish. But perish sounds too religious language. It, it, you know, it just has, it's a little bit softer. Just, if I just say honor God's son or die, that, that communicates a little bit better here. Do it, or you could say it in contrast to I did it my way. Do it God's way or die. Honor God's son or die. And I get that from chapter 2, verse 12. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will die in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. We are sinners. And the world is a world of sinners. So let me use, let's look at verses 1 through 3. And I'm not going to use this as a point of the sermon, but kind of as a way of introduction and setting up the rest of the text Look at verses 1 through 3, and we see that we are sinners, and we live in a world of sinners. Let's look at the description of sin here in this world that we are a part of and guilty of ourselves. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So what are the peoples doing? What are the nations doing? Two things. They're what? Raging and they're plotting. They're raging and they're plotting. Okay, let's... So what, what does it mean to rage? It means uh, they're restless, they have a desire, and they're angry about something, and they can't find rest until they get their thing done, so they're angry. Why are the nations angry? Why are the peoples raging? And why are they, plot, why are they plotting in vain? Now, it's interesting that it says plotting in vain. That's the same word in Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he plots on it day and night. He meditates on it day and night. So the happy man meditates on God's instruction, God's message. The nations who are raging are plotting and meditating on something else. And what they're meditating on is in vain. Well, what are they doing? Let's read on. Verse 2, you talk about now that's the peoples of the earth, now you get the leaders of the earth, and you get another way of describing their rage or their plotting or their meditating. The kings of the earth take their stand. So there's another action. They're taking a stand. Is it wrong to take a stand? No. Or yes, depends on what you're taking a stand for, right? So here the kings are taking a stand. Sometimes it's a sin to not take a stand, right? Again, but sometimes it's okay. It depends on what you're not taking a stand for. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together. So here they're conspiring now. They're planning, they're plotting, they're meditating, they're conspiring together against who? Against the Lord, and that's Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant, God, the great I am. They plot and plan and conspire against Yahweh, the God of the universe, and against who? His anointed one. Does anyone know another word for anointed one? Messiah, Mashiach, Messiah, Christ. They plot against Yahweh and against his anointed one. And here it's going to stand for the king. The anointed one is the king. Okay, so here you have plotting, you have raging, you have taking a stand against God and against his Messiah, and you have conspiring together against God and against his Messiah. And, and here in verse 3, I love verse 3 because it just summarizes the mindset. What are they thinking? What are they plotting? You say plotting and conspiring. What's their heart? Here's their heart, verse 3. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Let me read it again. I want, this, I want these words to sink in. I think this is the, this is a, the more I meditate on this verse, it's a great definition or it captures the spirit of sin. This is the core spirit of sin right here, I think, in verse three. Let's tear off their chains and throw, out, throw their ropes off of us. Who's, whose chains? Whose ropes? Their ropes, their chains, Whose? It's there, so it's more than one person. Who's the they? Somebody say it out loud. Anyone have a guess? Let's tear off their chains, their ropes. Say it out loud, Reese. Oh, you're right. Oh, sorry. Okay. Anyone? Come on. They. The Lord. Okay. And? And his anointed one. Okay, good. You guys are following along, right? So they, they, they're trying to tear off. We don't want to follow God and his chains and his Messiah's chains. His king's chains, get them off of us. Get the ropes off of us. That's the heart of sin. 
that God and His Messiah have chains and ropes. Let's tear it off. Let's get it off of us. In other words, their cry is freedom. Freedom. That's what we want. Freedom. Is freedom bad? Do we want, is it wrong to want freedom? Again, just like taking a stand, it what? It depends. What do you want freedom from? And what do you want freedom to? They want freedom. Freedom from the tyrants. Freedom from the oppressors. Freedom from the chain and rope bearers who hold us down and tie us down and burden us. Have you seen any other pictures in the Bible of people wanting freedom from God? Adam and Eve in the garden, remember that? Looking at the fruit and staring at the fruit and saying, I want freedom. And, and Satan, the serpent, even suggesting, God doesn't want you to eat that because he wants, you're going to be just like him. And he wants to hold you down. He wants the chains and the ropes to hold you down, Eve. Don't you want freedom? And then Eve takes the bite of the cucumber. Is it cucumber or fruit? fruit? It's, not, it's not a fruit. Never mind, sorry. Of the tomato, the tomato. Takes a bite of the tomato. And then Adam sees his wife and thinks, oh man, she just ate the fruit. What do I do? She's going to die now, but do I want to be with her or not? If God's going to kill her, I'm not going to have her anymore. What should I do? So Adam says, I don't want the chains on me. I don't want your ropes on me to say that I have to die and I have to be away from my wife. I'll eat the fruit too. So he takes the fruit and eats it. Let's tear off their chains or tear off their ropes. Let's break the chains and get it off of us. Let's not let it hold us down. Now, this is, they want freedom. What do they want freedom from? I mean, how do you know, how do you know what the Lord and his, and his um, Messiah want? Go back to Psalm 1. This is the opposite of the psalmist in Psalm 1. His delight is in the Lord's what? Psalm 1, 2. Lord's word, but what's the word there? His delight is in the Lord's what? Instruction or law. His Torah, his, his instruction, the Lord's message. And he meditates on the Lord's message day and night. In other words, for the Christian, for the happy believer, God's message is freedom. It's the pathway to freedom. But for those who are apart from God, God's word is not the pathway to freedom. It's oppression. See the difference? It's a heart difference. For some of us, we love the Bible. We love all the commands of the Bible, even the hard ones, because we know it's good for us. But others of you sitting here, you don't like the Bible. You only like parts of the Bible. But there are certain parts of the Bible that are a rope to you. They're a chain around you. Or to use John's words from 1 John 5, 3, God's commands are a burden to you. And if that characterizes your life, you're not a Christian. You're a fake if you're, if you're claiming to be a Christian. Because for a Christian, they understand that God's words, God's message is the key to freedom. If I could quote the Lord Jesus, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But for those on the other side who plot and rage among the nations, God's truth is a lie to them. The, the, the freedom is the advice of the wicked, the company of mockers, the pathway of sinners from Psalm 1-1. That's freedom. Freedom to do what I want, when I want. And so if you're not a Christian, you might, you might be here and you might be saying, you know what, this is why, you're, PJ, you're hitting on exactly why I would never want to be a Christian. I would never want to be a Christian. Why? Because, because that's, I want freedom. I want to be free, man. I don't want to take an old book. I mean, when was Psalm 2 written? It's written by David according to Acts 4, so this was written 3,000 years ago. You want me to follow the advice of 3,000 years ago? This is out of date. I'm supposed to bind myself in a straight jacket of an old book and live my life according to some ancient book because your church tells me to? Forget that. I'm not going to be a Christian. If that's you, you just want to be free, I get that because we should want to be free. But here's what you, under, you need to understand. Freedom from one thing is slavery to another. No one is free of everything. If you want to be free of all things, you're a slave to wanting to be free of all things. Does that make sense? I want to, I want to be free to do what, whatever I want, whenever I want. That's a slave of not just yourself, but it's a slave of your impulses. 
You know who else is, you know who else is um, bound by their impulses all the time? Little kids, one-year-olds, right? They have no sense of the bigger picture. If they see candy right there and it's breakfast time, they're, they're, they're enslaved to their impulses. They can't see that it would actually be more enjoyable if they ate it later, right? They can't see that. They're a slave to their impulses. No, I just want to be free to do what I want. Well, being free to do what you want is to be enslaved to whatever you want in that moment. So here's the thing. Everyone wants freedom, but everyone who's free from everything else is a slave to one thing, their ultimate master. For you, what is your ultimate master? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a relationship you have. Maybe it's a possession you own. Maybe it's a goal, an ambition you have that you're enslaved to. You might be free from everything else, but you're enslaved to that one thing. Here's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians are slaves of Jesus Christ, but we are slaves, bound to obey everything He commands. But here's what we would say as Christians. Here's the difference. So we're all slaves and free. It just depends. We want to be free from sin and slaves to Christ. People want to be free to do their own thing and, and are free from Jesus and free to do their own thing and slaves to whatever they want. But either way, we're both slaves and we're both free from different things. The difference is our master is the only master who dies for our sins and rises from the dead to forgive us before God and give us eternal life. Our master is the only one that when he gives commands, they're actually always without fail for our good. And it always brings joy in the end because it always brings us to God. How have your masters done? When, when, you're, when your work has been your master, how has that done for you? When your friends have become your master, how has it done for you? When your family has become your master, I love my family. When your family becomes your master and your highest value, how has it done for you? How's that working out for you? Jesus is inviting you to, to, to be free from all of these fake, false, destroying masters. All of these masters will fail you and they'll damn you in the end. I love my family, and I'm in a season of my life at my age where almost all of my family hasn't passed away yet. That's not, long, that's not gonna last long, right? It's a short season of my life. I'm in that moment right now, but they can't last forever. If I, if I put all my treasure in them, it's gonna fail me. If you get a job, you're gonna have, your job is, someone's gonna replace you at your job eventually. You're going to retire. So what is your master? Jesus is calling you to the only master who will last and really satisfy your soul. All right, so now let's go into the outline of this passage. I want to, I want to um, pose this question as we go through this outline. Why should we honor God's son? So if it's honor God's son or die, that's the main goal, honor God's son or die. Why? Why should we honor God's son or die? And the answer is uh, there's four reasons why you should honor God's son. Besides not dying, because it's honor God's son or die. So uh, the four reasons why you should honor God's son is because God laughs at you. God threatens you. God outmaneuvers you. And God calls you. Okay? Four reasons why you should honor God's son and not die is because God laughs at your resistance. He threatens you threatens your life and your eternity. He outmaneuvers you, and he calls you. So let's look at those one at a time. Verse four is point one, or, or the first reason. Why honor God's son? Because God laughs at our resistance. God laughs at our resistance. Look at verse four. The one enthroned in heaven, what does he do? He laughs. The Lord ridicules them. God is, now notice here, how does God laugh? God laughs with power. He's enthroned in heaven. So he's sitting on a what? throne, and who sits on a throne? The what? The king. So the king has authority, he has power, and God sits in, on, on the throne, and this throne is where? It's not on earth, but where? In heaven. You might be Nebuchadnezzar and rule over the Babylonian empire, but you don't rule over heaven. You don't rule over earth. You might be a president for four years or eight years, but you don't rule. God does. And so he laughs. He, he, he laughs with power because he's enthroned in heaven. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6, The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. God does whatever he wants, wherever he wants, whenever he wants. He's king. He's on the throne. God is never frustrated, ultimately, in his plans. 
So God laughs with power. God also laughs with confidence. Look at it again. It says in verse 4, the one in, throne, in heaven laughs. When you laugh at something, you laugh because you're confident, right? You laugh because it's ridiculous to you and you can see the bigger picture and you're, you're supremely confident in your read of the situation. Psalm 37, 13 says, the Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. Here you are trying to resist God. Here are the nations and the kings trying to resist God. And God laughs because he sees the day is coming. This is pitiful. This is pathetic. And then he, it says here in verse 4 that he ridicules them. The Lord ridicules them. He laughs at them with disrespect. He makes fun of their futility. Have you seen when people throw off God's laws and God's ways how ridiculous we can look? Have you, have you ever noticed how ridiculous you look when you're rebelling against God at times? I don't know if you've seen the, um, the video from the, some, some group that did a video survey at the universe, some Washington University, and they were, it was a video about transgenderism. And so the interviewer was saying, he was a, maybe about my height, he's European-American, and he's male, and so he's interviewing people, and he says, if I said I was a female, what would you say? And he's going around to different people, like, oh, well, if you're a female, you're a female. You know, all these people on video. And then, then he cuts the second round, and he says, if I said I was a Chinese female, what would you, now he's a European-American man. If, if I said I was a Chinese female, what would you say? And going around again, to say, you know, it cuts to them. And um, they're like, well, I guess if you're saying you're a Chinese female, I'm not going to question you. You're, you're a Chinese female. He's like, okay. He's like, what if I said I was a six foot seven Chinese female? What would you say? And they're like, they're like laughing and like, well, and they're like looking at him and they're like, well, I guess you're a six foot seven Chinese female, you know? And, and like, and like, you know, they, you could see them hesitating, but if they're following their logic to its, its logical conclusion, what, you know, how can I question your, your self-identification? You know, and, and it's supposed to be a ridiculous video. It's, it's not, that first question, it doesn't seem ridiculous in our day, right? If I identify as a different gender. But then when you start pushing it out further, um, you know, you start to see the ridiculousness of it. And that's, that's kind of the idea. Not that it's ridiculous, just so you know, if you're here struggling with transgender or gender dysphoria, I'm not talking about those who have a real tension in their heart. God cares for you and wants you to, to know the truth to set you free. I'm not talking about you who are really struggling. What I'm talking about is those who aren't struggling, who can just look at that, and it's ridiculous that they would just believe that, that someone can claim to be something just because they said it. To tear off the, the, the ropes and chains, right? I don't want the ropes and chains of a gender binary or whatever else God says in his word or has ordained in nature to be the case. I want to tear it off. And so God laughs. He ridicules them because it is, we are ridiculous in our sins. And he laughs with confidence because we have no power. We're not really a threat to him. Now, I'm 5'10", 5'9", I'm 5'9", and a half, <laughs> maybe a quarter now. Um, and the UFC champion, who's 5'10", his name is Khabib, I can't even say his last name. He's 28 and 0. We're about the same height. He's half an inch taller than me. Um, I have no chance against him. And I would say probably, I'd guess, in our church, that none of our members here have a chance against him in ultimate fighting, in a, in a mixed martial arts ultimate fighting contest. Right? I mean, does anyone here want to, ch- not, not that I know him, we can't challenge him, but um, I would guess that most of us here don't stand a chance against him. Now, that could seem ridiculous that I would even, you know, try to take him on. But what if, um, what if Zion, who's sitting here, how old's Zion? One and a half. What if Zion, in a rage, because Khabib takes his candy, and he rages against Khabib, right? Or he's playing with Zion, Khabib takes it. The UFC champion, undefeated, 28-0, and Zion rages against him and starts attacking, attacking Khabib with all his might. What's going to happen? I mean, nothing, right? I mean, he's just going to laugh at him. This is ridiculous. There's, not, there's no contest here. And that's how the nations are. That's how the kings of the, or that's how the most mightiest nations, the United States against God, nothing to God. That's how you are against God. It's ridiculous. It's laughable. And so why should we honor God's son rather than resist him and rage against him? Because God laughs at us. It's not even a threat. We're not even a threat to God. 
Nebuchadnezzar, when he, when he um, said, look at my palace, I read you that earlier, right? You know what God did? I'll read you the next verses. I read you Daniel 4, verse 30. Let me, let me continue the story here, Daniel 4, verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, look at my power, my greatness, my majesty, look what I did. While those words were still on his lips, it says, a voice came from heaven, Okay, like, like Jesus in the water baptism, like where a voice comes from heaven. A voice comes from heaven to, to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon while he's standing in his palace and it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people and to, to live with the an, wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. You're not special, Nebuchadnezzar. God gives it to whoever he wants. He gave you this kingdom. And you're going to walk around like an animal with a mental illness that you're going to think you're an animal for seven periods of time until you realize that God is king. It's laughable, Nebuchadnezzar, that you would think that you're the mightiest. You're no mightier than an 18-month-old coming against me. Verse 33 says, at that moment... The message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Wow. The king, the president, the mightiest man on earth acting like an animal with hair growing supernaturally all over his body, nails growing crazy, and for seven periods of time acting like an animal until he realizes that God is king of all. God laughs at those who rebel and betray him and plot to overthrow him. So honor God's son or die because God laughs at you when you resist. Second reason why you are to honor God's son or die because God threatens you. He threatens your life. Look at verse five. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. In his anger, so God is not indifferent towards sin. God is angry at sin. In Zechariah 1.15, God says, I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease. God burns with holy and righteous anger. God is a loving and patient God, but God is also an angry God. Do you know that it's a sin sometimes to not be angry? To not be angry could be sinful. If you think of a, you know, if I think of 9-11 or if a terrorist attack struck here in Los Angeles and many of our loved ones and friends died in a building that explodes or is bombed and is, it crumbles. If there was a building that did that with a thousand Angelinos from our city who die and you weren't angry at that, what's, you know, we'd say, like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you not angry? Why are you like, oh, no big deal. And you keep scrolling through your phone to the next news, news article. That would be wrong, right? You'd have to be angry at that because some things are, are so evil that if you're not angry, you're indifferent to evil. And God is always perfectly, righteously angry at sin. He never overreacts, but He never underreacts either. God terrifies them in His anger. He terrifies them in His anger. He's not only angry at their sin, He's angry at them. Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. God not only threatens them in His anger, but He threatens them in His wrath. Look at the verse again, verse 5 says, he terrifies them in his wrath. God will pour out wrath. It's not just a threat. It's not just words. It's not just angry emotions. It's wrath that's coming. God will crush them on the final judgment day. Second Thessalonians 1.9 says, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Notice that, eternal destruction. When Christ returns... God will terrify people with eternal destruction, and people will tremble. And it says in Revelation, people will call on the rocks to crush them rather than face God's wrath. So God threatens in wrath. God is holy and righteous, therefore sin is always a big deal, and it demands God's damnation and wrath. So honor God's son or die, because he laughs at you when you resist, and he threatens your life. And this is not just a false or an empty threat. God will bring judgment in the end. That's the second reason. Third reason why you need to honor God's son or die is because God outmaneuvers you. I wanted to say God checkmates you, 
but I'm not sure how many people love chess, and checkmates sounds like a weird uh, verb. So God outmaneuvers you. If you think of a better way of saying that, let me know. I'd, lo- I'd really want to make a note of that. I tried for a good long time, but God outmaneuvers you. Okay, so you have nations raging. You got kings stepping up to God, and they're trying to step to God and out-strategize and defeat God. And what does God do? One move to checkmate them. Just one maneuver, and he outmaneuvers them. And what does he do? Look at verse 6. Here's the move. It's verse 6. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Checkmate. That's all it is. You want to rage against me? You want to fight against me and my ways? You want to rebel against my message and my words? I just got one move. Put my king on Mount Zion, my holy mountain. Game over. War over, battle done. By installing his king in his place. His king? Who is God's king? Well, to say who's God's king, who's God's people? Especially here in Psalm 2, in the Old Covenant. Who's God's people? Israel. So who's God's king? The king of? Israel. So that God's king is the king of Israel, and his king is placed in Zion, his holy mountain. What is Zion? What's the, what's the name of that city, that mountain, Zion? Anyone know? Anyone know another name for that? There's Jerusalem. Yes. Jerusalem. So God's king, the king of Israel, will rule where? In what city? Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a mountain. It's called Zion, God's holy mountain. So here's God's maneuver to outmaneuver all enemies. He puts his king, the king of Israel... Let me even say it this way. It might prompt some thoughts in you. He puts his king, the king of the Jews, in Jerusalem, and he installs him as king. Why Zion? What is Zion? What is God's holy mountain? Let me read to you two verses on it. Psalm 48, 1 through 2. The Lord is great and highly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, is the city of the great king. Psalm 132, 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. That's God's home. Zion is God's home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. Isn't that crazy? God desires to live somewhere and he chooses a city on earth. Jerusalem, Zion, God's holy mountain. God will choose to live there, and he'll put his king there. Now, the king will live in the palace. Where will God live? In Zion, in Jerusalem. Where does God live in the Old Covenant? The temple, right? Solomon's going to build a temple, and before the temple's even done, as they're nailing in that last nail and screwing in that last screw, God's Shekinah glory just rushes in before they're even done, and everyone rushes out of the temple, and God moves right in. He's so anxious to move in, we had some members here who were anxious to move in their house for several weeks, right? We've been praying for them. He's anxious to get in. God is, God, 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 you know, right before the construction, just before it's even done, God moves right in. So there's Solomon living in the palace, and there's Yahweh living in the temple. And the temple's in a higher position than even the palace on the mountain. It's on the highest point of the mountain. So God lives there, and God's king lives there, and that's how God outmaneuvers the nations. How does he do it? He does it by installing his king. How does he outmaneuver us? By by installing his king. But there's another way he outmaneuvers. It's in verse 7. He outmaneuvers by decreeing and declaring the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Look at verse 7. So here's the author, and he says, I will declare the Lord's decree. So here's the author telling us that he's going to tell us what the Lord's decree is. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Now, who wrote Psalm 2? David, does it say David anywhere in Psalm 2 here in your Bible? Look at Psalm 3. Psalm 3, does it, did Psalm, is Psalm 3 written by David? How do you know? It says a Psalm of David. Now go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 written by David? Any evidence here that's written by David? No, not here. But those of you who said David are correct. So um, Acts chapter 4, when they're praying, they're saying, you said through your servant David, and it says, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. So they quote Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4, but they're saying David said it. So we know as Bible believers that David, said, David wrote Psalm 2, okay? Here's the point. David is saying in verse 7, I will declare God's declaration. I'm going to quote God is what David's saying. And here's what David, David's saying that God is saying. He said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. Now here's why I say the whole David thing. I'm telling you, so David's saying, let me tell you guys what God said. He said to me, 
um, you have become my son, or you are my son, and I have become your father. Now, is David talking about himself when he said, he said to me? My answer to you is no. David is prophesying a future son, not himself. Why? It doesn't say that here. I'm telling you something that's not in the text. David's saying, he said to me, you are my son, I have become your father. And I'm telling you, David's not talking about himself when he says me. He's talking about a future son. Why am I saying that? Because this is the Davidic promise. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 7? You can turn there later, 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. God promises David. Remember, David wants to build a house for God, the temple. And what does God say? David, your, ha- your hands are hands of what? Blood. You're not going to build a temple. Your son is. And then he says this. Your son will become my son, and I will become his father. And this is where you get the idea of the Davidic king is going to be the son of God, is the son of God. So Solomon is the son of God. Solomon's son Rehoboam is the son of God. And all the, the 20 Davidic kings are sons of God. The sons of David are the sons of God. But you know who's not the son of God? At least in, in the Davidic covenant, strictly speaking? David. God never said, David, you're going to be my son. He never said that. He said, your son will become my son. So when David is saying here, the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I become your father. David's not talking about himself. He's prophesying a son, his next son, who's going to build a temple perhaps, or some future son where God is going to declare to to that son that he's God's son. Does that make sense? So David's not talking about himself here. He's prophesying a future son. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you in my prophecy as, as a writer of scripture that God is going to say, he's going to put his king in. It's not me. It's not David. But one of my sons, he's going to say, you are my son. Today I have become your father, and he will rule over the nations. This is the Davidic promise. It's an enthronement psalm. You guys know when we install, when we install a new pastor, we're going to be voting next week on another pastor nominee in our church. We have a little ceremony. We have a ceremony when members join our church. We have, uh, you know, we have members classes, and we, we have methods for what we do. We have ceremonies. And when we have a pastor or a member, they have to take the membership covenant. When we renew our covenant, we all stand up, and we do a ceremonial. Uh, so we say some words, and the words, um, the, the words sanctify the moment. And whenever a Davidic son was to be enthroned, you would read something like Psalm 2. The new king is, you know, like when the new president, you have the inauguration, right? That's our ceremony. You have an inauguration, and he has to put his hand on a Bible and swear, right? So here, when you have the new Davidic king installed, someone would read Psalm 2. Today, the new king, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is now, he's, he's being sworn in as king. And today, God is saying, you are my son. Today, at your inauguration, I have become your father. I will install my king in Zion. You guys see how Psalm 2 is working a little bit here now? Okay. It's supposed to be like this ceremonial thing for Davidic kings. Now let's go to verses 8 and 9. So God outmaneuvers by installing his king in his place, by decreeing and declaring the Davidic covenant, and then by the victorious reign. What's going to happen with this Davidic son? Look at verse 8 and 9, this son of God. God is still speaking to this Davidic son, and he's saying this, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, Davidic king. And the ends of the earth, your possession, you Davidic king. You, Davidic king, my son, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Now, did this ever happen to any of David's sons in the Old Testament? Where they um, ruled all the nations? All the nations. Who's the one who, ha- who, got, who ruled the most out of all of David's sons? Solomon. But even Solomon didn't rule all the nations. The queen of Sheba came to pay him honor, but he wasn't ruling over her, Right? <laughs> So Solomon, the greatest Davidic king, the first generation after David, the first one to get this, you are my son, he's the greatest of all those kings, and he never ruled all over the nations. So the question is, which Davidic son is going to rule over all the nations? God is going to empower David's son to rule over all nations. Which one? And so if you read Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He is, so here, here I'm reading to you the prophecy, a fulfillment. Your king is coming to you, this king that he's installing. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Listen to, listen to what he's saying about this king. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. And he, this king who's coming on a donkey, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Which Davidic king comes on a donkey to rule over the whole earth? Jesus, King Jesus. David is prophesying that in a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Now, now I want you to know something else here that's really um, interesting and uh, edifying from this passage. Look at verse 9. What is God going to give this king? You'll break them with a what? With an iron scepter. You'll break them with an iron scepter and you'll shatter them like pottery. Now, in Numbers 24, verse 17, so just follow this scepter. In Numbers 24, 17, don't turn there. I'm just, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize more. God promises through Balaam, the prophet, that God will have a scepter coming from Israel that's going to crush Moab. It's going to crush a nation, smash a nation. What, what, what is the scepter that's going to smash one nation? If you go back before Numbers, go back to Genesis 49 verse 10, God says that this scepter is going to come from the tribe of Judah. This scepter from the tribe of Judah is going to crush Moab, crush a nation. Scepter crushing. If you go back further in Genesis, you get another idea of crushing. Where's that other idea of crushing? Genesis 3 verse 15, where God is cursing the serpent and he says to the serpent, the seed of the woman will what? Crush your head and you will crush his heel. So this serpent, or this serpent's going to be crushed by someone who's going to have a scepter from Judah who's going to crush Moab, and according to Psalm 2, he's not just going to crush Moab, he's going to crush all the nations. He's going to smash all nations, and he's going to smash the serpent in the process. Who is this? Who is this who's going to have the scepter? As you already said, it's King Jesus. Here's the point of this, here's my point on point three about God outmaneuvering you. God's response to the peoples and kings and leaders rebelling against him is not only to laugh at them, it's not only to threaten them, but it's to establish his Davidic king. That's his move. That is the one move that defeats all enemies. That is the checkmate move. And here's the good news. God wins. God wins. So after speaking about this big strategic move to gain the victory, here now, David is going to call us to respond. So why should you honor God's son or die? Because God laughs at you, because God threatens you, because God outmaneuvers you, and lastly, because God calls you. And what is he calling you to? Look at verses 10 through 12. What is God calling us to do? He's calling us to wisdom in verse 10. He's calling you to action in verse 11, and he's calling you to homage in verse 12. To wisdom, to action, and to homage. What do you mean to wisdom? Look at verse 10. So now kings be what? Be wise, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth, be wise. You know this word be wise is the same word in, uh, in chapter, it has, it's the same word family. Um, wisdom in verse, in, in Psalm 1 is the word um, prospers. Whatever he does, he prospers. So being wise is being prosperous. In in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, God, or, um, God uses that word, talking about meditating on God's word day and night to Joshua, so that you would be prosperous, so that you'd be successful, so that you would be wise. So here's God's call. If you understand that God outmaneuvers you and he laughs at you and he threatens you and you understand that you're a sinner who's rebelling, then be wise. Be prosperous. Be successful. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. What does it mean to receive instruction? That means to take God's word and delight in it so that you actually want to obey it. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, right? And what is the fear of the Lord? I told you last week, I'll tell you again. The fear of the Lord is a deep respect for who God is, which liberates your will to do what God says. The fear of the Lord is a deep respect for who God is that liberates your will to do what God says. And that's what wisdom is. So if you want to be wise, respect God, the one who laughs at you, the one who threatens you, the one who outmaneuvers you, the one who calls you, respect him so much that you'll do whatever he says without your, yeah, without your excuses. Yeah, I want to obey that verse, but there's this and this and this, so I can't obey that verse. Yeah, I want to obey that command, but that person's getting mad at me, so I can't do that command. Yeah, I want to obey that Lord, but 
I'm going to get, um, that's going to make, that's going to pinch me financially and I don't want to do that. Like, you don't, if you're fearing God, you don't have excuses. You just obey. You, you respect God so deeply that you obey. And so you receive his instruction. So God is calling you to wisdom by fearing him, by respecting him so much that you want his words. All right? So that's to wisdom. But you also have here to action. God calls us to action in verse 11. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. So he's calling you to, so it's not just to wisdom, just to hear God's word and say, I believe it. Actually, he wants you to act. Are you serving the Lord with reverential awe? Psalm 102, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. So there's a joy. That's why he says rejoice with trembling. Is there trembling? Is God scary? Yes or no? Yes. Is God powerful? Can he do whatever he wants with you whenever he wants? Yes, you're at his complete mercy. That's scary. So there's trembling. But there's joy when we are at God's complete mercy because we know at the heart of who God is, God is good to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a scary thing to be at his mercy, but you don't have a choice. You're just at his mercy. But you can rejoice with trembling if you know that he's good. And we know he's good. We know he loves us because he gave Christ to die for us. So rejoice with trembling. Daniel 4, verse 34 and 35. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Remember, he had hair all over his body and long nails, and he was going, acting like an animal for seven periods of time. Let me finish the story here um, with Daniel 4, 34 and 35. But at the end of those days, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. I looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here's the mightiest, most powerful man in the world saying, I am nothing before God. We can't block his hand any more than an ant can block your hand from destroying it. You can't slow him down. You can't stop him. And this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, realized that. And so he praises God. He, he has a rejoicing with trembling. But you know what? God doesn't only want you to serve him, serve God. He doesn't want you to just fear him. Look at verse 12. And this is the main goal of the whole thing. He wants you not only, he's not only calling you to wisdom and to action, but to homage. And not to homage of God in this passage, but homage towards who? The son. Now remember, don't run to Jesus yet. Remember, this was even in the Old Testament, you're supposed to pay homage to Solomon. Pay homage to Rehoboam. Any Davidic king who's installed as king, Davidic king, you need to pay homage to the son. You need to kiss the son. The literal translation there is kiss the son. You need to recognize and respect the office of the son. Now this son, it's not just, it's not like we need to respect Donald Trump or Governor Newsom as the office holders in California and the country. We should respect them and their office. But there is also a religious respect for them because God tells us to respect them, right? I mean, that's what God says in Romans 13. So we don't just do it out of mere being a good citizen or neighbor in this country. We do it out of obedience to who? To God. It's a religious thing. It's a, it's a spiritual reality why we honor, right? But we go beyond that. At least in Psalms, America is not a Christian nation. There is no Christian nation in the world. But in Israel, in Old Covenant Israel, that nation is a covenant nation. So it's not just respect your leaders, it's this is the covenant nation. So it's religious, it's respect for the office, but it's also we are a covenant nation honoring this Davidic king. Okay, so, so um, pay homage to the son. So God doesn't want you just to honor God, he wants you to honor this human Davidic son who's the king. Why? Look at verse 12. Why should you pay homage to this Davidic king? Pay homage to the son or he will be what? He'll be angry and you'll perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. So this is why I say honor God's son or what? Or die. Yeah, perish. Or die. Why? Because God will be angry and his anger can light up at any moment. Have you thought of any, can you think of any stories in the Bible where God's anger lights up at any moment? I thought of a few. Do you remember Uzzah? You probably don't remember Uzzah. Uzzah, there was the Ark of the Covenant on the cart, 
and they were, they were carrying the ark not the way that God told them to, on poles where people are supposed to have it on their shoulders. They're carrying it on a cart, and it's about to fall off. And Uzzah says, no, and he holds the ark of the covenant and pushes it back on, and what does God do? It says God's anger was ignited, and God struck him dead right there. Because the dirt on the floor is not as dirty as a sinner's hands. And so God strikes him dead. His anger lights up in a moment. Or Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, remember, he's there walking around his palace. Look at all that I've done. And immediately, before, while the words were still on his lip, God what? His anger flared up in a moment. Ananias, it, can this happen to Christians too? What about Ananias and Sapphira? Remember that? They come and bring their offering and they lie and God's anger flares up in a moment and he strikes them dead right there in the church assembly. When else will God's anger flare up? Here's the biggest one. When the trumpet sounds and Christ returns. And that will come in a moment. These little pictures of Uzzah, Nebuchadnezzar, Ananias and Sapphira, one person being surprised. When Christ comes and that trumpet sounds, all kinds of people are going to be surprised. And it's going to be sudden, it's going to be decisive, it's going to be unstoppable, and the consequences and the damnation is going to be eternal. So God says, honor the Son or die, because God's anger flares up in a moment. And if you don't come to Christ, you betray Christ. If you don't come to the king, you are a traitor. That's what we would call treason. To not give loyalty to the true king is to betray the king. And that's what sin is at its core. It's treason. It's betraying the king. It's betraying the kingdom. So there's the psalm. That's Psalm 2. It's meant to set up the covenant community for singing and praising God. But let's, let's think about this a little bit more before we close. The Davidic kings fail, don't they? Don't all of David's sons fail? They end up going into exile. They wait for God, but the throne is vacant. By the end of the Old Testament, they're reading Psalms. Now, this is their songbook, okay? This is their hymnal. Imagine having this hymnal, and you're singing this song about this king, and you're in exile. You're like, what am I singing about? All the nations are going to bow down to our king in Jerusalem? We're not even in Jerusalem. We're in Babylon, you know, or they come back to Jerusalem and their, their temple is terrible. They don't have a Davidic king. They're still under Cyrus, the Persians, and they're singing their, their hymn book. And they're like, what are we singing? Is this even true? What are we talking about? God, you haven't outmaneuvered anybody. The nations are still raging. And so generation after generation, they read this and they have to sing with faith because they can't see it because they're in exile and their, their, their nation is broken down. So how does God eventually establish a king in Zion to defeat his enemies? How does he eventually put his king in Zion and declare him his son? Well, this son comes to earth and he gets baptized. And when he comes out of the water, he hears a voice saying, you are my son and you I am well pleased. And then, and then he dies on the cross for sins and then he rises from the dead. And Acts 13, 32 and 33 says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he says, God has fulfilled this for us, Psalm, or Acts 13, 33, in the resurrection, God has fulfilled this for us by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So if you're at a ceremony, like a pastor installation, or you're at a ceremony of the Davidic king at the inauguration, when was Jesus' inauguration? When was God finally declaring, you are my son, today I have become your father, in the sense of Davidic king? When was he finally, decisively exalted as king, inaugurated as king? According to Acts 13, 33, in his resurrection, on the Lord's day, what do we celebrate every Lord's day? The inauguration of the king, that he rose from the dead and was declared the king of the nations and the king of the universe. That's what we do every Sunday. And the author of Hebrews, he applies this to the high priest, this resurrection, but here it is, in Christ's death and resurrection, he is declared king. God installs his king in Zion, because where did he die? On the cross, it says, King of the Jews. Where is he dying? What, what city? Jerusalem. On Zion. On what mountain? God's holy mountain. Where does he rise? In what city? Jerusalem. When God says, I installed my king in Zion to defeat all the nations, where was that checkmate? It was on the cross, on Good Friday. And when Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, that is checkmate. Right there. He rises from the dead. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Take this scepter and smash the nations. 
They are your inheritance. You will rule forever and ever and ever, risen son. Revelation 12 and 19 talk about Jesus ruling with this iron rod. So we honor the son. We pay homage to him. We hear his word. If you're not a Christian, God is telling you to honor the son too. The apostle Paul wasn't always a Christian. He raged against God. He killed Christians because he hated Christianity. But God, Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, the declared son of God, confronted Saul on the road, and Saul turned to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, God is confronting you today. And he's saying that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead. You're a sinner who deserves hell. God made you and owns you, and you will answer to him. But God sent Jesus as king to be your king. But he calls you to pay homage to the son. He calls you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you get saved. Not by your works, but by you turning from your sins, repenting, and trusting in Jesus Christ. So God is calling you now. And if you're a Christian, do you sometimes rage against God? Yes. And so God is calling you as well. He's calling you to turn from your sins and be restored to the king. As a church, how do we honor the son? How do we as a church family honor the son? The answer is we participate on Sunday. That's how we do it as a church. It says in Hebrews 12 that all Christians everywhere gather around Mount Zion to pay homage to Christ. And where do we gather physically and not spiritually, but physically, where do we gather around Christ? Here at the church. We have gathered here today at the feet of, at the pierced feet, I think we just sang it, around his pierced feet, right? At the pierced feet of Jesus, we gather today to pay homage to him as king. So we gather Sunday morning to hear his word. We gather to sing to him. We gather to confess sins to him. We gather to rest in his cross. And then we come back at five o'clock p.m. and we gather to pray to him. We gather to share blessings about how good he is to us. We gather to hear his word one more time. We gather to take communion Sunday morning or Sunday night, and we gather to to go around that feast to take his bread and say that we are part of his body. We drink the cup and say this is his blood for us because he has made us his people. He He is our king, and we are his people. We are his holy nation. Every Sunday, we gather Sunday morning, Sunday night, to declare that Jesus is king, to honor him as king. Now, I couldn't resist this. I have to take another minute to explain this because it is just so good. I'm sorry for those of you who are waiting, but don't worry, we don't have Lord's Supper. Revelation 2 says this. I did this with our Wednesday group. You know Revelation 2, 26? Listen to this because he's talking to the church. You know the ones who conquer. Revelation 2, 26. The one who conquers, the Christian in the church, who conquers and keeps my works to the end, here's what Jesus is saying to the Christian who conquers. I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? This scepter that is going to crush the nations is going to be given to each member of Bethany Baptist Church. You're going to be given the scepter and you are going to crush the nations with Jesus. You are going to reign with Jesus. When you interact with another church member here and you're discouraged by another church member here, remember this. That is a king and queen of heaven. And she is going to rule. And she's going to have the iron scepter. So let us love and serve. I mean, if, you know, um, if, if a dignitary of Donald Trump, he visited a church, if Governor Newsom, if, if a celebrity, you know, Kanye West who's professing faith in Christ, if someone came who was known, really known and came to church, we might all be like, ooh, he's here. You know, she's here. You, you, you kind of fawn over that. But do you realize that every member of this church is a king or queen who's going to rule over the nations? And these earthly kings are nothing. They'll be forgotten. And the real significant people are the people right in front of you. Jesus even said you're greater than John the Baptist. That God would share his scepter with us? Why would God do this? Why would God share the scepter with us? I mean, we don't honor God. We don't revere him. We don't receive his instruction. We don't go towards wisdom. We don't serve him with gladness. We don't honor his son all the time. We actually rage, don't we? Don't we feel like God has chains on us as Christians? Don't we feel like we have ropes on us? We deserve to be crushed under the scepter, not to hold it. Why would God do this? He did this because Christ was crushed under God's scepter. 
When Christ was on the cross, God took his scepter and crushed him so that he wouldn't crush you, but then that he would give you the scepter to rule with him. That Christ, who never denied God's wisdom, who never took God's command as a rope or a chain, that he would be crushed under the scepter for sinners is amazing grace. That is the gospel of Christ. That is the gospel of God, that God would crush his own son so that he would give you the scepter to crush the nations with him. That's amazing. And we're not only going to crush the nations, just like Jesus isn't going to just crush the nations. Remember Genesis 3.15? Who else is he going to crush? Satan. And that's why Paul says in Romans 16, God will soon crush Satan under your feet, church family, because you will have the scepter and, and Satan will be crushed under your feet. So, brothers and sisters, honor God's son or die. Non-Christian friend, honor God's son or die. God has established his king in Zion. Resolve in your heart now that every time you hear God's call, you will choose again and again to honor the son, the king. If you don't choose to honor the son, you're going to compromise in your Christian life. You'll rage against God and you will die. But if you resolve now to honor God's son, you will grow in your faith you will grow in joy and you will grow in true freedom and happiness. You'll put off the chains and the ropes of this world and Satan and you'll have true freedom and joy in Christ. So I'll close with the last line here of Psalm 2. How happy are those who take refuge in Jesus, God's son, God's king, God's Messiah. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own or so, and then I'll pray after. Lord Jesus, thank you for being crushed for us. Thank you for being forsaken by God on the cross that you would save us from our sins. Thank you for rising from the dead and taking your life back. You are the risen king and we worship you as king. We honor you as not only the son of God but God the son who became a man for us. You are now risen you are ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and we wait for your return when you will come to judge the living and the dead. Fix our eyes on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.